came up with the name Pursue the Wild and the logo like 10 years ago. And I knew that someday I would want to have a bigger reach, but I, I didn't want to limit anything I do to just hunting. My goal with it is that some, you know, someday in the not so distant future, people think, well, how do I do that? I want them to say, I bet you Christie's in a video about that. Let's work. That's my goal. Welcome to the RNA Outdoors podcast, fueled by Ripcord Arrowrest and First Light Hunting Apparel. At RNA, we are public land DIY conservationists that love to share our passion for the outdoors. So join us and our team as we interview professionals in the industry to share insight knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. listeners, subscribers, and fellow outdoorsmen and women. This is your host, Lucas Paw, and I'm excited to tell you about some of the sponsors that continue to help make this podcast not only happen, but grow and thrive in this digital world of audio content. This podcast is brought to you by Ripcord Arrowrest, the bow hunter's number one fallaway rest on the market. Ripcord is known for 100% full-time arrow containment and their patented drop-dead brake system that eliminates launcher bounce back. Best of all, Ripcord is backed by their rock-solid guarantee. If the original owner has a part break for any reason, it will be repaired or replaced at no charge. And did I mention? Ripcord is located in southwest Montana, where all their products are made with pride in America. Check them out at ripcordrs.com and on their social media feeds. This podcast is brought to you by First Light Clothing and Hunting Apparel. Born in the Rockies in central Idaho, First Light's mission is to create simple yet proven versatile gear that provides comfort and performance in any situation while working to promote the pursuit of ethical hunting and stewardship. I recently joined the First Light Pro staff team and have continued to be impressed year after year in their innovations in engineering and merino wool fabrics. Ten years ago, they started putting out wool fabrics with camel patterns, and immediately this changed the game. Since then, they offer multiple layering systems and kits in various proprietary patterns and continue to raise the bar with their competition. Find them online at firstlight.com or under their social media feeds. Go farther, stay longer. Welcome, listeners. You are tuned into another episode of the RNA Outdoors podcast. I am your host, Lucas Paw, and today I have the honor of bringing to you a very special guest uh, who's both a TV personality and also creator of the new digital series, Pursue the Wild, which airs on both the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's elknetwork.com and also on YouTube and some of the uh, other social media outlets. 
Christy Titus is a huge advocate for many conservation organizations and also goes out of her way to help protect our Second Amendment and public lands. Through these platforms, she shares her adventures and love for the outdoors. Her greatest hope is to inspire others, giving them confidence to tackle the most demanding outdoor activities and shooting sports. So with that, I'd like to welcome Christy Titus to the RNA Outdoors podcast. Welcome, Christy. Thank you so much for that uh Really thorough introduction, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Sound a little familiar? <laughs> I was yeah, on your website yeah. looking at some stuff. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. We put it out there to be read, right? Yeah, exactly. Most people don't read websites. They just look at pictures or videos. So, mm-hmm. Okay, um, so just to kind of get the podcast kicked off, we want to just to kind of get to know you a little bit. So what I put together is with some of our, our guests is what's called the Quick Draw Q&A. So we'll kind of go through um, a series of questions uh, and answers, um, all but pretty much related to, you know, um, you know, topics that, um, you know, you're passionate around, you know, both elk hunting, um, archery hunting, rifle hunting, and then also get into some of your background on your pursuit of the wild uh, and kind of your passion for cooking and doing some other uh, neat things on your website. So Absolutely. Okay, with that, we'll kick it off with the first question. What is your favorite species of North America animal to hunt? Well, that one's easy. That's elk. <laughs> All day long elk. Awesome. For sure. So that'll lead us right into the next question. Would you rather prefer to bugle or cow call? I would say my answer to that would depend. But, um, you know, for me, as rut pressure kicks off, as hunting pressure kicks off, a lot of the cows really stop cow calling, and I'll use a cow call if I'm trying to call in a satellite bull or a bull that I suspect doesn't have cows. If I'm working an elk or a bull that has cows with him, I tend to not cow call. Okay. So it's it's really scenario-based, specific it work. Would be, it would be my best guess at the moment. Gotcha. <laughs> Because it's good. That answer is always going to depend on the situation. Yeah. Um, but if you have to learn how to do something well, I think you know, kind of leads me into that next question. Um, learning to use a diaphragm is critical for both bulls and cows, and and you need to learn how to work that instrument. Yeah, I mean, open read is a good call for cow calling, but it's you know, if if you can't operate a pallet plate or a diaphragm, you can't bugle. So. You kind of need to be able to do both if you want to be a proficient elk hunter. So, well, not only that, but I mean, you think about it. You know, you're blowing a, an open read cow call or a push button cow call, and you make the same sound over and over. Or you're running a bugle tube with a piece of latex stretched over the top, and your bugle sounds pretty much the same over and over. And you learn how to use a diaphragm, and it opens up the entire vocabulary of elk to you. You can make muse chirps, extra sounds, cow uh, lost calf sounds, calf meters, calf chirps. You can do one-note, two-note, three-note location bugles. You can do display bugles. You can do challenge calls. You can bark. Anything an elk can do sound-wise, you can make if you learn how to use a diaphragm call. And um, I think it's the best investment that a hunter can make as far as an elk hunter is, is learning how to use that. Yeah, absolutely. Very versatile tool in the, in the elk country. Okay, um, would you prefer to archery hunt or rifle hunt? That would depend also. <laughs> um, I like bow hunting elk because I love being close to elk and having that intimate interaction and connection with elk. Uh, but I, I mean, I love rifles, and I love rifle hunting also. Um, so 
I would never want to have to make a choice between the two, to be honest with you. Yeah. Probably part of it's what tag can you draw or what, you know, what hunt can you get the option to hunt and based on, you know, archery, rifle, muzzleloader, you know, take what you can get. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you look at some sheep hunts and some mountain goat hunts, and sometimes it can be tough to get above critters to get within that lethal distance of shots and shooting across some canyons and things like that in rough terrain. It's nice to have a rifle. Yep, Absolutely. Okay, um, next question. I know you are a big proponent of the uh, Ramcat broadhead, uh, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, obviously we, we'll get into that a little more in the discussion. But um, if you were to choose between a fixed blade or expandable broadhead based on, you know, one of their designs, what would you what would you pick? I'm a fixed blade user. Okay. All the way. So, so the Diamondback, is that your broadhead of choice or the Absolutely. original? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. The Diamondback is what I use and... Um, in, in Oregon, it's not legal to use expandables, um, and so I've never really shot them. But anything that can go wrong sometimes will on a hunt, and I always like to lessen my margin of error in any way possible. Not that expandables fail, but um, I've just been really, really impressed with, with the Diamondbacks, the way they carve an absolutely devastating one channel. I mean, they get in there, and you hit that broadest hit, it keeps twisting. And um, that cut on contact, they're just—they're literally razor sharp because they're razors. And um, I, I'm just—I—I I can't see a reason that you'd want to go necessarily with an expandable broadhead. But that's just—that's just me. I love—I love those Diamondbacks. Yeah, no, they're pretty impressive. I've just started shooting them this year, and the two animals that I've taken with them this year <laughs> pretty much makes you a believer after the first one. So they're—they're pretty—it's a pretty incredible product. Yeah. Okay, um, would you prefer back straps or tenderloins for dinner? Uh, tenderloins. Yeah, definitely tenderloins. Elk meat on the barbecue, oven baked or fried? Oh, um, fried. <laughs> Sounds so bad. <laughs> Don't tell my nutritionist. I am no nutritionist. Never mind. That's yeah. right. So speaking fried. of some of your kind of your background and some of your, your culinary skills, we'll dig into some of that. So what would you prefer as an ingredient, banana, pumpkin, or blueberry muffins? Pumpkin. By far, yeah. What is one of your favorite overall ingredients to use in, in some of the uh, um, some of the recipes that you use? I'm trying to think of something that I eat every day, you know, that I like to eat constantly. Um, boy, I don't know. I'm so boring. <laughs> Splenda. Splenda, there you go. I am like, I'm a coffee junkie and I travel with my own coffee creamer gotcha. and my Splenda everywhere I go. And I put Splenda in my cottage cheese with fruit. I put Splenda in my coffee. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. So we learned something new about you. I'm probably going to die of some weird Splenda caused like organ failure, but <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I don't know. Oh, it's all good. Um, Would you prefer to use bacon or butter? Bacon. Sweet or sour? Sweet. Lemon or lime? Lime. Gotcha. Okay, shifting gears just a little bit, a couple more questions. What's What's your favorite piece of gear in your pack? If there was something that you just couldn't leave without, whether it's in your pack or, you know, on yourself, what would that item be? Oh, gosh. Um... 
trying to think of something. Well, you know, to be honest with you, like for me to be independent in the backcountry, I would say my GPS. Because I get lost really easy. And my GPS is one of those tools that, you know, when I first started hunting solo, I remember I would walk like a 50-yard radius from my truck or a 100-yard radius or 400-yard radius from my truck, however far it was, it was close. And that comfort zone slowly grew. And, you know, knowing I can drop that point in my GPS and I can go chase an elk and get completely sideways and not even pay attention to where I'm at um, and know that I can get back to my truck at the end of the day is, it's what's taken me, you know, I hunt elk solo constantly, and um, I couldn't do it without that. Yeah. Do you use an actual separate handheld device, or do you use it on, like, your phone, like with a landowner chip, or what do you prefer? I have a handheld. I have that Garmin, that 655T. It's got a little radio in it, and um, I do have Onyx Maps in there because I, I'm a, I'm a, private land border hustler. I like, I was joking my seminars about hustling elk over fences. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, uh, I'm that guy, gal, um, that will call an elk off your property if I possibly can. Yeah. Um, so well, gotta like that landowner information for sure. That's the beauty right. of, of that system is, is it allows you to get close and you're, mm-hmm. you know, it also allows you to not trespass or at least it gives you that option to know where the border is. And, you know, obviously people will make choices that they do but you know before having any of that using blm maps and other things you just could never really know where you were which you know sometimes got people you know into hot water as well so yeah yeah absolutely okay last question for you would you rather hunt for yourself or would you rather take someone else hunting oh boy that's kind of 50 50 because there's some things that i'm kind of selfish and i'm like i want to hunt that and then there's some other things in life where I'm like, yeah, I like to take people. Um, so it just depends. One of my favorite things is to go elk hunt with my dad. Um, and, you know, when I hunt with my dad, I pretty much, I mean, I'll bring a bow. Um, but usually it's all about him for at least, you know, the week that we're together. Because he doesn't get a lot of time to hunt um, anymore. And he's really hearing impaired. And, um I like taking people hunting. I like calling elk in for people as much as I like shooting them myself, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, too. Because that, you know, when you when you hunt something like an elk, typically it's a team effort. And um, if I call in a bull for my hunting partner, it's every bit my success as it is the person pressing the trigger, you know. Um, so that's... Uh, I would say that goes, you know, kind of both ways. Now, there's some species out there that I'm all about hunting. Like, you know, this year I'm hunting moose. It's like a bucket list thing for me. So, um, and I've, I've filmed some stone sheep hunts, and I've filmed some hunts that I'm like, man, I wish I was hunting. Yeah. <laughs> I can't afford to, so I'm just going <laughs> to enjoy the experience of observing. Yeah, and that's the beauty of some of these hunts is, is you know, when someone draws a really awesome tag or someone decides to take that plunge and spend, you know, a bunch of money and go sheep hunting, you know, doesn't mean they can't bring 10 of their best friends with them to mm-hmm. go experience the same thing. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just looking, uh, I was just browsing through your website. One of your um, premiere episodes, I think on your pursue the wild, which we'll talk a little bit more about on the digital series was um, an episode where you took your dad hunting. And I think you were actually um, archery hunting on public land in Oregon where it looked like you were doing some calling for them and a general over yeah. the season or, you know, over the counter tag. So, mm-hmm. 
some of the best memories I think, you know, we all have is when we were kids or even growing older hunting with our, you know, our parents or the people that taught us how to hunt. So that's, that's what it's all about. Well, and yeah, my dad and I are pretty lucky that I, there's not one year that I have hunted elk on public land that I haven't drawn my bow back. Um, now, whether I make that happen or not, or, you know, if you guys watch my pilot, you know, my dad and I sat down on this bull that I had spotted in the morning. We'd spotted in the morning and tried to get him to come in. And we were talking peak rut last week of season, and he wouldn't come. And I let him go to bed, and we spent the afternoon getting around on top of him. And I knew it, we were close. And I sat down and I was kind of monkeying around with my iPhone and my dad elbows me and that bull had gotten up. We were, you know, must have bed it, you know, sat down a hundred yards, maybe above his bed, not even probably. And, and he walked 55 yards in broadside in front of me and I didn't have an arrow knock. I had my bow sitting next to me and, and you can watch me, you know, I have to wait for this bull to get in the trees and I knock an arrow. And, and when I, when I press my shot off, I hit a limb and, uh, it was just one of those moments where you just look back like, it, it, that's archery hunting, you know. Mm. I, I, I'm glad it was a clean miss, but uh, that was a, that was tough because we hunted six days and we saw three elk. In six days, I called in four different groups of hunters. And, um, you know, my dad and I, I called in my dad a nice bull and he got busted moving, you know, ranging the bull. And then uh, my dad and I got on a on a bull who we had screaming and, and um he was in a burn, and I just couldn't close the gap on him without being seen, and he wouldn't come in. And, and that's all public land stuff. It's a lot of fun. Um, that's bow hunting, and that's what makes it so exciting is you have these memories you can look back on and really, like, oh, that was so close. That was so cool. <laughs> well, it's cool you got to capture that, too. And like we've always said, it's, you know, it's not always about the harvest. It's about the adventure and being with people you enjoy being with, you know, out pursuing elk and pursuing those things so that's that's really at the end of the day what it's all about mm-hmm. i know my dad and I, i'm hunting roosevelt's opening weekend this year and then my dad is is uh he can't hear the wedding this opening weekend so we're gonna hunt the third week in oregon and i won't have a tag for the unit that he drew so uh i already got my film permits ready for public again this year and, and we're gonna film uh, both of our elk hunts this year public so we're going to be trying to make it happen this year on camera again. Cool. Well, that'll be exciting and be, uh, be looking forward to seeing that. So, mm-hmm. so kind of getting into, I guess, a little bit about you and we've kind of talked a little bit about, you know, your relationship with your father, but just to kind of get into your background in terms of the outdoors, I know your roots are kind of in the Pacific Northwest growing up. Um, in Oregon and, you know, you always kind of did, you know, backcountry public land DIY adventures, you know, which required typically horseback or mule trips back in, but maybe Mm -hmm. just give the listeners just a a little bit of a background about you and kind of your roots, uh, you know, and and really to how you've gotten to where you are today. Well, I was lucky, you know, from the time I was little, my dad worked in a sawmill, you know, working class family. My parents didn't have any money. You know, my mom was a waitress, and, you know, my dad, he worked in a sawmill. And um, we never had the money or the luxury to go places like Disneyland. And, and when I was a kid, I was always a little disappointed about that. But um, I'm, as an adult, I still haven't been, and I don't really care to ever go. But um, we instead, you know, we had mules, and we would pack into the backcountry, and fish high lakes and, and um, camp and, and do things that we could afford to do that were, you know, time quality time spent. And I learned a lot. You know, my dad let me 
I was kind of, a, I've always been kind of a joke about being half dude. And, um, you know, when I was a super little, I, I always wanted to lead my own mule and saddle my own mule. And I wanted to do it all on my own. And, you know, I, I didn't want my dad really helping me a lot. And so I would struggle and pretty soon I'd get frustrated enough and I'd ask my dad for help and he'd help me. And that's kind of, I got lucky growing up like that where my dad let me make the mistakes I needed to make and, and learn the things I needed to learn sometimes the hard way. But I that just moved into hunting and, um, hunting changed my life, you know, just, just who I am. I can't, you know, the outdoors, I can't imagine not living the adventure that I live. Um, so that's basically, that's basically my life. Isn't yeah. That show? <laughs> yeah. And, and so growing up in Oregon, I mean, were the opportunities, you know, pretty plentiful being in Oregon versus I guess maybe current state now? I mean, was there a lot of opportunities to just go out and chase, you know, public land, you know, blacktails and elk? to this, you know, similar, um, I guess, relationship that we have now with those same animals? You know, I think for me growing up, the biggest thing was, it, you know, my dad, my dad loves hunting. He lives for elk season, dreams about it year round. But my parents or my dad weren't, they're not, in vet, they were not, um, I don't know how to word this. The obsession with the outdoors wasn't to where it is with a lot of people now. Um, you see people that are studying hunting constantly. There's a million podcasts out there. There's, you know, competitions like Train to Hunt, and there's all these community and outreach stuff. And when I was a kid, it was a means of survival. Um, so if we didn't shoot a deer in the winter, we didn't eat. If we didn't have an elk, we didn't eat. You know, we, I grew up eating macaroni and cheese and corn and, and, and wild game meat, venison, whatever. And so I think, you know, there's been a huge change from how I grew up to you know, hunters today, um, you know, my dad wore jeans and a, his, you know, logging shirts, hunting and suspenders. And he, you know, go to sleep in a cut block after his graveyard shift and wake up and, and hopefully there'd be a deer out in a clear cut. You know what I mean? Yeah. So life was just a little bit different with hunting, you know, kind of where I grew up just almost, I don't want to say we were poverty level, but you know, we were pretty definitely, you know, um, the gas money was an issue getting in the woods and, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah. And I think that's kind of what, you know, makes it so neat today. I mean, when you look at where a lot of us came from, I mean, I've similar upbringing, you know, shooting deer and elk were a means of survival for us too, just to have, you know, food for that year, you know, whether it was elk meat or, or deer meat or antelope meat. I mean, it was all, all the above, but you know, it, it was normal for like me, my brother and my dad to go out and we would come back with, you know, a couple deer in the back, maybe a cow elk or, you know, a couple antelope. I mean, just you'd go out and you weren't looking for the biggest animal. You were just looking for a animal to harvest mm-hmm. so you could, you know, feed your family. Whereas, you know, it's it has changed, um, you know, probably for the better. I think conservation and, you know, some of the organizations now are, are making it to where we can hopefully, you know, continue to keep this legacy going, which is... Um, kind of something I want to kind of dive into next, which is really your background uh, in a lot of the organizations uh, and conservation efforts that you're affiliated with. Um, One that comes to mind for me is Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, which you're a member of the Team Elk uh, TV group and also um, a volunteer of many Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation chapters. But just maybe kind of talk a little bit about your affiliation uh, with the RMEF and kind of where that's taken you in your career. Well, RMF was founded in 1984, and my dad's been a member since I can remember. Um, so as a little kid, 
you know, once a year, my mom and dad would get dressed up. And I was joke about being like adult prom. Like my mom would do her hair and she would get a nice outfit. And my dad would wear his fancy cowboy boots and his nice blazer. And they would go to a banquet. And that was like their annual date night, you know. And then, you know, on some years they would save money and they would go to Reno and spend the money and, and go to Reno. And that was their big, you know, that was their time as adults and parents to, you know, kind of go and do what adults go and do, you know, mm-hmm. have fun, enjoy, enjoy the spirit of the outdoors together. And so RMF has always been in my household. I, I don't remember cognitively as a child or as an adult not having Elk Foundation as part of a conversation in our household. Um, so that's been, you know, I'm really proud of that. You know, since 84, RMEF has opened access to a million acres. We've conserved or enhanced over 7 million acres. That's, those are big, powerful numbers, and, and right to date, there's only 220,000 members nationwide. There's not a lot of members that have done an awful lot um, for conservation and, and for wildlife, and, um, you know, I can't imagine dedicating my time to, to a better group. The volunteers that work with the Rocky Mountain Mill Foundation, they're just like my dad and my mom, and, and they're salt-of-the-earth people that a lot of, you know... A lot of us are just working class people that, that want to do more, that want, you know, want to, you know, we may not have a lot of money, but we got, you know, a Saturday to go tear down fences or go help, you know, put in some water guzzlers or repair water guzzlers or go do some controlled burns or mentor kids. And um, it's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, just about a donation. It, it can be a donation of time. And, and that's what's so great about Elk Foundation, our volunteers are they're incredible people, and I love them. I mean, they're my family, you know. Yeah, and you think about a lot of these organizations. That's what makes these organizations successful is the volunteers. And mm-hmm. what's crazy about it is, is that typically, you know, the volunteers, they're not paid. They're showing up on their own time to do this, but they want to be there. To your point, they want to, you know, help conserve elk habitat. They want to, you know, like you said, do some of these, um, you know, different projects that they the Elk Foundation will will kind of steward, but I mean, these are all walks of life, people that come from, you know, all different parts of the world that just want to show up and help and they'll walk away and don't want to ask for anything. And I think that's the power in a lot of these organizations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that, um, the, we, you know, the thing that I see is that activating younger people and, um, there's a lot of, there's a big push, you know, keep public lands, keep them public. And I think those are a great, that's a great message. But I think there's a lot of people, especially like our age, that aren't necessarily activated with volunteering and not necessarily activated with conservation groups. And it's a, um, not a conversation that a lot of households have or not enough have, I should say. And I would like to see more people have a conversation about, okay, well, if you're going to hunt, and you want to hunt elk and deer and all these other animals, what have you done this year to give some time to those animals, Um, i.e. volunteering for a banquet, volunteering your time on the ground, even giving a a monetary donation, you know, whatever it is, and then what have you done to manage predators as well. So I think there's a lot that goes into anymore being a conservationist and being a hunter. It's not just just picking up your bow every day and, and posting a picture on Instagram. It's actually putting your boots on the ground, putting your time out there for conservation, and then 
you know, taking that a step further and, and even, you know, standing up and managing predators too. So I think there's a lot of work we can do as a community and as a culture, um, and it's just going to keep getting better because I know there's so many people out there that feel the same way that I do that, that are continually evolving their efforts, and, and that's really what's making a big difference right now. Yeah, and speaking of kind of giving back, you – had also spent some time um, with the Safari Club International. I know you'd spent some time lobbying, um, you know, in Congress, basically on the footsteps of D.C., trying to, yeah. you know, just continue to, 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 you know, push the conservation and the, and the public land messages and maybe talk a little bit about that experience. And I know, I think you were also a chapter president of, of one of the SCI chapters. Just maybe talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I was in my early 20s and I started stuffing envelopes as a volunteer and organizing community events because I had a desire to learn. So I figured if I have a desire to learn something, there's other people in my community do. If I have a desire to help kids, there's other people in my community that want to help kids. And and if I wanted to help educate women or whoever, there was other people that wanted to help. And I just started with a real activism role locally, which turned into me being on the board of directors for my local chapter, which evolved into eventually me becoming president, vice president, that whole deal. And then I was led to the footsteps of Washington, D.C., where I did quite a bit of lobbying. And um, that was all in my earliest of 20s um, that I did those things. And um, I really feel, I mean, I a lot of people ask me, well, how did you get to be a you know, TV star, a hunting celebrity? And I always laugh because I'm like, I'm not a hunting celebrity. I'm an activist. I'm, I'm just somebody that's out there that's walking the walk. You know, and I'm not trying to be famous. I was never trying to have a TV show. Um, but my activism led me that down that path. Um, and, I, and I just think it's really important that so many people get involved. Um, and, you know, taking a picture and posting it on social media is not activism. You know, um, we need to do more. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping to try to spearhead that. I've got some big things that are brewing right now. I can't exactly announced right now, but I'm taking my activism to another level, which is bigger than anything I've ever done. Um, and I'll be able to announce that hopefully, um, in the coming weeks. And, um, I'm really excited about it. So that's good. I I think, you know, the, the more voices that we have, you think about, um, you know, some of the stuff that was happening earlier this year in Utah with trying to shut down some of the land there. And, you know, of course, you know, the Senator speaking up and, and getting some of this stuff abolished. I mean, the more, that, you know, we as, you know, conservationists, hunters, out, outdoors people can get in front of that or at least have a voice in this, um, you know, the more we have a fight. Because if we don't, you know, we, we're seeing what can happen um, with some of this legislation. Um, and, you know, it's scary to think that, you know, in 30 more years or 40 more years, there's not going to be a place for our next generation to go out and enjoy the things that we all I would say to some extent probably took for granted a little bit as kids because we were never under fire, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And now it's constant battle. It seems like where we're continually trying to beat off, you know, new regulation or, or someone that's got an agenda to, to try to push us, you know, out of the way. Well, and that's exactly right. I mean, we're, we're in an uphill battle all the time. And unfortunately we even kind of do a little bit of battling amongst ourselves, which I think, I think we're getting better about. Um, I think that as as a whole, the hunters are uniting more. We're starting to realize, okay. But even with that, you know, I, I mean, I I get picked apart online a little bit. But you know, what we need to do is really 
be happy with what our administration is doing. Um, we have the Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, who has just proposed an expansion um, for hunting and fishing in a lot of refuges right now. And um, we need to get behind and vocally support, endorse, and encourage these leaders at the government level, um, encourage them to keep pushing forward the mission of the hunter, you know, because our biggest fatality of ourselves is loss of activism. And the, the people that quit hunting and they quit fishing and they quit carrying because they lose access, they don't have a place to go. The, the deer hunting on public land isn't as great anymore because all the deer are on private because the wildernesses are not being managed properly and, and there's not food sources for wildlife on those. So it becomes a responsibility of a private landowner to, to manage wildlife. And we need to get uh, the voice of the hunter out there supporting um, people like Ryan Zinke, people like Donald Trump, their president, that we have this administration now that really has the ear um, we have you know, the sportsmen, and we need to we need to support, encourage, because if the antis have a louder voice, they're the ones that's going to be carried out. And um, that's that's I just did a thing on NRA TV last week talking about that, where the Washington Examiner highlighted that. And if we don't come out there and say, hey, we need to support Secretary Zinke, the antis are going to go against him and say, no, we don't want to open hunting and fishing and and these are bad things. And and they're not going to tell the story of how hunting is conservation and and why it's important that we allow it. So um, again, it's that that next level activism that needs to happen. Well, very well put, um, which may kind of lead us into our next discussion. So I, I would like to get into a little bit about kind of what you've got going on and, and not necessarily some of the stuff that you were, we were speaking to earlier, but, really around Pursue the Wild. Um, you know, this is um, a new digital series that you released uh, earlier this year, um, specific to um, the elknetwork.com. And then also uh, really uh, your platform that you're using is YouTube, um, you know, which is a, a huge, um, you know, outlet for, you know, I mean, you think about everything on YouTube and how you can get caught up in one video. And next thing you know, you spiral to something completely different. So mm-hmm. there's such a, there's such a pathway there in YouTube and social media, but maybe just kind of tell the listeners a little bit about this venture, um, kind of how and where it started uh, and what your vision was for pursue the wild. Oh boy. So I came up with the name pursue the wild and the logo like 10 years ago. And I knew that someday I would want to have a bigger reach, but I, I didn't want to limit anything I do to just hunting. Um, and cause I feel like there's so much more to being a hunter than just having a hunting show. So, um, it's just a concept that I've had and, and what I'm doing with pursue the wild, um, it's airing on elk network, which is Rocky mountain elk foundation's network. So it's just elknetwork.com. It's home based on YouTube. Um, but what I'm doing with it is I'm, I'm stretching and it's kind of crazy cause I'm doing two new pieces of content a week, which is a lot. But it's tips and tactics, so there's all kinds of how-to information. Um, and then it stretches into hunting, fishing, shooting sports. Like, I have, you know, episodes where I go train at FTW Ranch. I have an episode next month launching where you guys are going to literally see me get beat up and punched in the face, and then I have to shoot a pistol in a defensive situation. It's, it's a pretty <laughs> rough day. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then hunts. 
um, and then you know showing after after the shot, after you catch your fish, processing, um, and cooking segments because I like to eat, so a lot of cooking. So showing a full circle movement of what being a hunter is truly about, um, which is so much more than just pressing the trigger on a deer. Um, mm-hmm. You know what goes into being successful and physically, you know, in the gym, all of these things. So. Um, to me, it's, it's kind of, you know, I, I explain it as the journey of my life in a way. Um, and hopefully people learn from me as I learn from other people and I can share that in this broad spectrum. That's neat. Uh, you know, thinking about, you know, where it's at right now and, you know, potentially some of the goals you have set. I mean, what, what do you see for in the future forecast um, going into the future for pursue the wild, and I guess what would you you know want people to get out of it, and what you know kind of do you want to get out of it? My goal with it is that some you know someday in the not so distant future, people think, well, how do I do that? I want them to say, I bet you Christie's in a video about that. Let's look. That's my goal, you know, because with me, I am I don't know everything about hunting. There's so much that I don't know. Um, and the things that I teach in some of my seminars are um, bits of information or tactics that I've learned from people that have more experience than me. And it's, I'm not reinventing the wheel with a lot of the information I'm putting out there. I'm just making it attainable. Um, the lessons that I've learned while hunting come from my father or grandfather or, you know, good friends of mine. And I want to take that information and just make it a little bit more broad-based. And I hope that people recognize that and can respect it. I get a lot of, um, I'm getting a lot of internet trolls right now. People are like, oh, you can't hunt on public land by yourself. And I'm like, have you done your Google search? (laughs) Really? Um, But I don't, you know, I don't owe anybody a resume um, because I I mean, I can't say that, you know, I don't make mistakes because we do. And and I can't say that the things I don't know are necessarily all mine because I've learned a lot from great people. And and I do believe that hunting, a lot of successful hunting is a team effort. And so it's just, it's just, you know, you got to take it a grain of salt and keep going and and hopefully, you know, inspire others along the way, you know, with the whole process. Yeah. Kind of looking at your digital platform, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say that outdoor TV is going away, but it, it seems like more of, you know, the content now is going to, you know, YouTube or Vimeo or on some of these, um, you know, social feeds, you know, where it's, it's more web-based than it is, you know, having to buy, you know, a cable company service and watching it on the Outdoor Channel or on the Pursuit Channel. Mm-hmm. But um, was there a decision point there for you to go more on the digital front versus, you know, putting it out in a TV series or kind of what was your thought process around that? Well... With digital, I just have so much more flexibility. You know, if I wanted to do a network TV show, I can't run a four-minute tip on how to remove scent from your clothing using dead downwind. Or I can't even do a tip for 12 minutes on how to prep meals for a backpack hunt, you know, using wilderness athlete products. I can't. You can't do that. I can't do a how-to um, maintain your bow or how to call an elk in the early season. Like there, there's just so much that you can't do with mainstream television um, that I can do with my digital platform. And when Elk Foundation launched Elk Network, or they told me about Elk Network at this point last year and invited me to be a part of it, to me it was a no-brainer um, because 
educating people has been the inception of where I, why I'm here in the first place. I mean, I started out activating my career to activating my community, I should say, um, to learn. And that's how I got where I am today. So why not take it to where if I can just not only reach the people in my community, but if I can reach the world as long as they have the Internet, I mean, that's powerful. And that's what I want. I want to inspire the world. I don't want to just help the women that live locally or help the people that can attend a seminar or um, the people that are fortunate, you know, to get to hunt with me and, you know, or that I am fortunate to hunt with them, I should say. Um, But yeah, I mean, I wanted to do something that would, would reach farther and have a broader message that then outdoor TV can't do. Sure. And you think about, you know, in today's generation and society, I mean, everyone has a phone or a computer or has the internet. So they have all of these at their disposal to, you know, go online. And like you said, I want to learn how to, you know, bugle in an elk in the, you know, the pre-rut or the early season. I mean, there's probably 30 videos, you know, on YouTube. And, you know, the hope is, is that, you know, one of your videos would be in there as well that someone would look at and, you know, mm-hmm. it may be similar, maybe a little different than someone else's tactic, but at least it would give them another view or another perception on, on you know, what's worked for you or what's been successful for you. So mm-hmm. that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. And I have a lot of ladies that are, that email me and they're like, yeah, how did you, you know, how did you become to where you were comfortable hunting alone? And I just, I'm like, well, you know, I tell you kind of the story, like it didn't start out overnight, that's for sure. And, um, you know, just those baby steps, you know, helping people through that process of those baby steps, gaining confidence. I have a lady named Carrie Craighead. She went to my first elk hunting seminar that I did in my 20s, we're talking over 10 years ago, and she just wanted to be an elk hunter, and I mean, I was still a baby elk hunter at that point, you know, and um, although I had more experience than most women, um, and she is now a successful DIY elk hunter. She's a sponsored archer. Like, I mean, just to watch her change over the years, and there's so many more women like that, you know, and it's very profound. Yeah. It's got to be neat to be able to influence, you know, not only women, but I'm sure there's men that, are, you know, mm-hmm. are in the same boat that have, you know, never done a public land DIY elk hunt before and, you know, go by their first, you know, elk call and, you know, kind of figure it out for themselves. But with having this type of platform, it sure makes learning a lot easier if you're someone that's willing to, you know, kind of look into some of that stuff. And because there are still some people that don't want to go there. I mean, they want to, you know, do a lot of things on their own, which is good, but there's so much information out there now and having it kind of at your fingertips, if you will, um, sure makes it a lot easier for people like that, that, you know, are striving to, to want to be successful in the outdoors. Well, and what's so funny when I started doing seminars or writing in magazines, I didn't have men show up. Like the girls would show up and there would be no guys at my seminars. Like, they could be bothered with learning from a girl, you know what I mean, kind of thing. And now my seminars are full of men, and when guys come to me for advice, and they mean it, you know, they, they respect me, and they want tips on using elk calls, and they, they want to hear what I have to say. Because my seminars I give, 100% of my videos are public land, DIY hunts. All of them are self-filmed, um, and I'm, I'm solo in all of the hunts. That, I'm, that, I, that I show tips from or tactics from. So I want people to come to my seminars and walk away from 
this girl was out there and she filmed this on her own or this this success happened on her own. I don't want them to feel like, oh, well, she was on a private ranch with so-and-so. You know, I it, just to have guys come to my seminars and, and attend and give me that respect has been very hard-earned. And it's the change in the last six years alone has it's just unbelievable. Yeah, I bet. I, that's probably got to be fulfilling at the same time, you know, just for you, some self-confidence knowing that, you know, you're, what you're doing is making a difference. And like you said, it's a respect thing, but there's integrity in that. And, um, it probably helps you get up every morning and do what you do every day. It's just nice for women to be embraced. You know, it's not a guy's sport anymore being back country. I mean, my girlfriend, Jordan Bubb, this girl's out there every weekend backpack hunting or scouting alone solo. She's one of the most hardcore chicks you will ever meet. She was doing a seminar in Cabela's with me this weekend, full of dudes. Um, and just to see another woman be respected like her because she's legit. Um, that I love that. Now, there's a lot of fluff out there of girls that are doing stuff that I don't agree with, but that is just the nature of, of anything, you know. But sure. um, there's some definite women out there that are really awesome that are great examples for other women that really want to be successful to follow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's neat. And it's good to see their success and obviously your success and, you know, you being, like you say, an influence to some of these, you know, other, you know, girls that want to get into the industry and it's, it's, it's neat to follow. It's neat to watch that happen. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit on the health and fitness front. Um, you know, you've got a pretty long background in sports nutrition and exercise, um, maybe just go into a little bit. I know on, on some of your digital series, you've got some videos on, you know, some of the work that you do in the kitchen. So you like you say, you're very active, um, in cooking and developing recipes, but maybe just talk to some of your recipes and maybe any secrets that you have uh, while you're kind of working in the kitchen and some of the things that you like to do. Well, I, <laughs> I cook really boring. Uh, no, um, so this for me, you know, when I look at food or the perspective of food, I'm always looking at nutrient ratios. And you guys watch some of my backpack tips on how to backpack food meal prep for extended stay hunts. You know, my focus with those meals and, and most of the meals in my life is that every meal has the same ratio of carbohydrates complete protein and fat, um, and in calorie content as well. And so, um, I try to eat like a diabetic. I encourage people to eat like they're diabetics. And, um, I think it really promotes the most whole health that is possible, um, for the human body. When I look at your, um, your health tab on your website, I, I, I don't see anything very boring on there when I see, multiple different types of bars, muffins. I mean, a lot of the ingredients that you use are, um, you know, from the earth, organic, you know, type ingredients. So, um, you know, muffins, apple cinnamon, um, a lot of different types of bars that you put out there. Is all this stuff, stuff that you've just kind of generated and you've kind of, kind of put your ingredients to and kind of finessed over time, or is this stuff that maybe you had influence over previously and maybe took that and, and changed it a little bit? I mean, the thing with, like, bars and meal replacements is, like, the traditional protein bar, they don't keep me feeling full very long. Um, and the ingredients aren't as whole. So they break down faster. So I started 
making bars in my bodybuilding days, especially, um, the oatmeal bars were kind of manifested from that. Um, so, um, you know, other competitors were, we were all kind of, you know, messing with these recipes. And so there was definitely some influence on that in those. Um, but my muffins are kind of famous now. <laughs> we always joke about the Titus muffins being awesome, but, um, yeah, there's definitely an influence there. They do, um, they do fill the need in a pinch. There are some really great bars out there now, though, you know, that taste good nutritionally, that are balanced. Quest bars are great. And then I discovered this last week, this new bar called the One Bar. And it literally, like, if you buy the maple donut bar, it tastes like a maple donut. If you buy the peanut butter and jelly, it tastes like peanut butter and jelly. It's like crazy. It's like these things are really like candy anymore. Wow. Um, so you can have some of that stuff without feeling guilty and, um, you know, for me, I was such an overweight kid. It's like weight and being in shape is something that is a definite struggle for me. And it's something that I have to work at, which is why I'm so conscious of it. And I'm not necessarily the most dainty person in the world, but, um, if I weren't as cognizant of what I'm doing as I am, I would be I don't know, probably 180 pounds, you know, pretty easy. Hmm. Um, I have to be very careful. Speaking of some of some of the uh, recipes on your website, so you got to tell me about these sweet potato chips. Oh yeah, those are just dehydrated sweet potatoes. Gotcha. Yeah, they're just nice to take backpacking. So you know, when I'm when I'm cutting weight or I'm trying to watch what I eat, I'll eat packaged tuna, and I'll take those sweet potato chips and I'll have them in the field, and you can get some clean carbs in that way. The cinnamon coconut looks like it gives it a pretty good twist. Those look uh, oh, like something I like might want to try. Little crack candy bites—they're <laughs> ridiculous. And thank you for reminding me of those. I haven't made them in years, and I probably don't need to start making them again. But they are so good. Yeah. yeah. No, they look yeah. excellent. Kind of looking at some of your um, exercise routines. I know um, you had had a surgery earlier this year, and you've been doing some rehabilitation to kind of get yourself back to you know probably where you were. Uh, before that had happened, but um, maybe just kind of talk through a little bit around your training regimen and kind of what you do around some of your just general exercises and kind of what you do to prepare for some of your hunts. Yeah. So I am kind of a gym rat. I love working out. You know, this year I had my knee reconstructed. I injured it in January on a snowmobiling accident on a mountain lion hunt. And I was um, from January until March, um, in a leg brace and my leg partially froze, meaning it quit moving. I had my leg operated in March and, um, I was bedridden for the entire month of March and I, I tried to stay active and I, I couldn't drive. Um, I was on crutches for eight, uh, seven weeks. Um, and I tried to do, I, I got to a trainer that had a like a dojo that did some stuff where I could do exercises on my back or sitting. So I tried to stay pretty active, but I'm probably, I mean, this year has probably been the worst shape of my adult life. Just, you know, trying to, you know, just my injury alone has just been really debilitating. I did the train to hunt of it in June. So one of the commitments I made this year is that I was going to do train to hunt and um, train to hunt gave me mentally something to focus on when I was hurt, you know, to try to kind of push through recovery and and try to keep as active as I could. I bought a spin bike and I would cycle on my spin bike one-legged because my right leg wouldn't bend. 
and I'd put my leg on the handlebars or on a bar or on a ball, and I would cycle with one leg. So I would tell people, you know, don't tell me what you can do. Tell me what you can do. Sure. Like, if you, if you want to have the mindset of I can't do that, then we don't even need to have a conversation because I, if somebody, if somebody told me, well, you can't ride a bike, I'd tell them, well, you're crazy because I just don't use both legs, you know? Um, so I just, you know, you can always find something that you can do to improve yourself physically. And I think for me, that's the biggest message with everything I do is you don't have to be perfect because we're human. And that's why God loves us. You know, he died for us to be imperfect, right? Um, his son died for us to be imperfect, but I, um, I think that we need to give our best all the time. So I, I don't expect people to be food saints and eat perfectly all the time, but I make a consorted effort with every meal, you know, for the most part. And, and same with training, you know, if, if you have a shoulder injury, if there's something you can't do, work around it. If you have a leg injury and you can't work with that, work around it. And there's always something people can do, but when it comes to backcountry hunting, it's legs and lungs. But I've also seen guys that are double amputees climb mountains on their hands um, and their butts and get there. And so um, I think whatever anybody does, they need to do it to the best of their ability and realize they don't have to be perfect as long as they're trying. Yeah, I mean, you you bring up a great point. I mean, thinking about, you know, some of the organizations like Wishes for Warriors and some of the other ones, you know, we are working on, you know, with wishes and warrior wishes for warriors on trying to do maybe like an antelope hunt or something for a few vets in the, in the coming years. But, you know, there is more of, you know, these, these wounded, you know, warriors and and vets that, like you said, have, you know, multiple amputees or even, you know, have arms, both arms and legs missing and they're out there and they're getting it done. And when you think about yourself and put yourself in a perspective, it really puts you in check when you think about, you know, when you can walk in there by yourself with, you know, all of your arms and legs and do this when you got other people that, you know, are just struggling to get up the mountain and they still get it done. And to me, that's motivation. Oh, yeah. I work with a group called Wounded Warrior Outdoors and we take active duty um, military personnel on outdoor adventures, hunts and things. And they're referred by military hospitals. So we don't know who's coming on our trips or, you know, what their ability is will be. Some are visible, some are invisible. Um, and I've seen the most incredible miracles happen. Um, and that's, you know, when I hurt myself this year, I, I, you know, my whole thing was, well, this is temporary. There's guys that will never, you know, be able to overcome that. You know, I've got a buddy, Carlos, he's a double amputee and he killed a black bear and, um, he now runs five K's with, with no legs and, and he does it to raise funds for, homes for troops and um he hand cycles full marathons and you know i always i I just really think that in life that we have to focus on what we can do and and make that the most positive rewarding thing possible yeah absolutely so thinking about kind of the fall in the the 2017 season kind of looking out there and like you said, you've been kind of getting yourself to where your your knees and you know the the shape it needs to be to get out there and chase some of these animals. What what are some of your plans in seventeen? I guess what hunts do you have lined up or anything that you'd like to speak to? Oh boy, I have tons of hunts lined up for this year. Um, I'm taking a little girl um, named Jennifer Grigo that has cystic fibrosis on an elk hunt. She's an incredible little gal. I've been trying to get on a hunt with her for a couple of years. That's one that. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of community support on as far as landowner donating um, the area for her to hunt. The state of Oregon giving her the tag. Uh, it's basically a governor's tag for the state. Uh-huh. Um, and a group called Children with Circumstances Outdoors that is um, providing meals and lodging and all kinds of stuff. So um, really looking forward to that trip this year is probably one of the my keynote trips um, that, that I'm looking forward to. Um, but moose, I'm doing a moose hunt this year with a North River Stone Outfitting our North River outfitting, um, and uh, in British Columbia, and I've hunted Bron and Maria Nemnichek before. They're incredible people, and um, they have incredible moose, and um, I'm just cannot wait to get up there. And then I'm, I'm going mountain goat hunting with a bar Z outfitters in British Columbia this year. I, I have my assistant guide's license, and I I assistant guide up there in the spring uh, pro bono basis because we have horses and we pack into back country 35 miles and it's kind of like going home and I've been doing it for six years. Um, I love it up there and I'm, I'm going goat hunting up there with them this year. So a couple, couple big trips for me that are, that are dreams. I have gotten a mountain goat before, um, but not in November. My mountain goat I got with Ron and Maria from North river outfitting, um, was an August goat and he's a beautiful goat, um, but I want to get one with that, you know, big, furry, chappy hair. And um, I'm hoping this is my year. I'm going to try to bow hunt that as well. So it's going to be extremely challenging. Wow, that's exciting. So having your knee in good shape and, you know, clearly being in the best shape that you can be is pretty critical this year for a moose hunt and also a, a mountain goat hunt for sure. Oh, you know what? Like Sunday, yesterday, um, I, I, there's a there's a run that I do at Liberty Lake in Idaho. Well, I guess it's Washington, technically. Um, and it's an eight-mile loop. And I did it a couple years ago. I guess it's been like a year and a half ago. And I did this loop in like an hour and a half, maybe a little bit longer than that. It's a pretty challenging loop. And, uh, and I decided to do it on Sunday. And I thought, God, this is going to suck. Because I haven't ran since I hurt my leg. And that was in January. And, uh... Other than, you know, some short jogging for train to hunt. And I did the loop. I ran some of it, not a lot. Uh, it took me two and a half hours. But uh, I thought, well, if I can get through this, then I can get through my goat hunt. And sure. I did it. So I wore my pack. My, I have a, a Kafaru uh, 14er, which I love that pack. You can jog in it. It's awesome. Um, but I'm trying, you know, trying to get ready for that goat hunt, trying to get my legs strong and because that thing's going to be a brutal hunt. <laughs> yeah, usually anything, well, depending on where the goats are, can sometimes be where the sheep hunting ends. So depending on, you know, the elevation and the topography you're in, yeah, they can be they can be pretty challenging hunts. But that's neat that, you know, you I guess you probably got over a little bit of a fear by doing that and getting out and running since it's been, you know, you know seven, eight months since your, since your accident. So as you get through those different times, that helps you probably, you know, excel to the next level to where you feel. Now you might feel comfortable going out running where you can kind of build, you know, your lung capacity and get to a mm-hmm. point where you feel more comfortable being up in that high elevation. That's what my spin's for, man. Like that spinning kicks my butt. That's the lung capacity stuff. My spin bike. So I've been doing that. But what's the scariest thing for me right now is jumping. Um, my leg does not the responsiveness is not there. And the, um, if I lose my balance, the 
recovery time of, of losing my balance is not there. And those are the hardest things for me. I, I can't hardly do a six inch, six inch box jump right now. Like my leg just doesn't pick up that fast. And that's a, so that's the hard stuff for me right now is, is getting that, um, neuro transmitters to like get it to fire and, and trust that it's going to work. And it's scary. Sure. But it's probably, I mean, at some point you'll get to a point where, you know, you'll be doing the box jumps and then it'll be on to the next, you know, the next thing that you'll, you know, hopefully be able to overcome that fear. So it's always a progression. It's always a work in progress, you know, and the good thing is, is, is we got a lot of hunting ahead of us to do. And usually to me, that's motivation to kind of kick it into the next gear and, you know, make sure that I'm in the best shape that I can be in, you know, when I go up there. And uh, it's, it's funny because when you look at, you know, kind of the, the sport of hunting, if you will, some of it's gotten to that where it's, you know, it's kind of turned into a, you know, people are posting a bunch of photos about all the workouts they do, which is cool. And I think that that can mo- help motivate people. Um, you know, but the other thing is, is you don't have to be, um, you know, the best fit athlete in the world, you know, and 5% body fat, you know, with a high VO2 max to actually go out and do this stuff. I know more people that are probably in the ladder of the shape and they still get it done. So, it's neat to see however one prepares, however one does it. It's all different, but at the end, as long as you know they're successful or whatever their measure of success is, that's really what it's all about. Oh, for sure, and a lot of it's mental. Like I would rather be out with somebody who's mentally tough and in lesser physical condition than somebody that's in great shape that's mentally weeks off. Sure. Yeah, I mean they're they're. And I've I've been out with folks that are, you know, in probably better shape than I am, but have not spent a lot of time, you know, out chasing animals, you know, spending nights under the stars in a tent or, you know, dealing with rain and snow. And, you know, typically, you know, they struggle in that. And it doesn't matter how good a shape if you're in, if you can't deal with some of the elements that you're going to, you know, get into, whether it's September or whether it's in November, um, you know, it may not be a good outcome for you or them. So (laughs) Christy, it's been good having you on. Um, just appreciate your insight and, uh, just kind of telling us a little bit about your journey, you know, clearly, um, you know, you've had a lot of successes in your life and you've got a lot of good things going on and sounds like you've got some other stuff that's kind of in the queue that's, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll come out and excited to hear some of that stuff. But, um, if someone didn't know who you were, cause I know you've got a, you've got a pretty strong uh, social media presence. How could someone get a hold of you? Um, I am really easy. So just at Christy Titus and, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter is K-R-I-S-T-Y-T-I-T-U-S. My YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash pursue the wild, or you can also find it on elknetwork.com forward slash pursue the wild. Plenty of places to catch up with you. And if if folks have questions, they can get a hold of you, direct message you. And and, uh, if, uh, you know, who knows what what the future could be, but it's neat to see you out there, you know, charging and, and, you know, being a figure out there, um, not only in, in the outdoors industry, but also, you know, being a role model for a lot of people uh, out there. And, you know, these people that come to your elk hunting, you know, your elk calling seminars, you know, they're obviously, like you said, people that respect you and want to be there. So it's, it's neat that you're making an impact in the industry. Thank you. I'm, I'm really trying. Hopefully um, people can go into my channel on YouTube and learn some new things and, and gain some confidence to go try Try something new in the outdoors. Excellent. 
Well, like I said, thanks again, Christy. Uh, appreciate you being on the uh, RNA Outdoors podcast. Uh, it's good to have um, you know you on, and, and like I said, share some of your insights and your stories. Uh, and uh, look forward to uh, you know meeting you one day, and also you know probably having you on again on the show, and uh, you know to the future and in, in outdoors. And uh, just continue to do what you do. Well, thanks, listeners, for listening. Uh, and thanks for tuning in to the Arnie Outdoors podcast. Uh, and we'll catch you next time for another adventure. Hey, everyone. This is Lucas Pa, host of the RNA Outdoors podcast. Please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, Go to podcast app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it'll automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or just use our website, www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, Please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, Instagram at Rod N Arrow Outdoors, and Facebook, RNA Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, get involved with conservation efforts, and know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, see you guys on the next ridge. Outline for a podcast before, so I'm really impressed. Yeah, I'm a BFer, so you won't have any problem filling whatever your time slot is here. Dude, I'm I do Blue Mountain or the M every time, and your brother's a punk, he never shows up.